Human trafficking for labor or sex would seem to be something from another time period, or at least another place. But New York is the point of entry for many of the victims trafficked into the United States each year. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guests this morning are on the front lines in the fight against human trafficking, and were instrumental in getting an anti-trafficking law passed in New York State in 2007. Monica Roldan is the manager of community outreach and a social worker for Sanctuary for Families New York. Monica, good morning. Thank you. Hi, good morning. Also with us today is Carol Smolensky. She's the executive director of End Child Prostitution, Child Pornography, and Trafficking USA. Welcome, Carol. Thank you for having me. And on the phone with us is Sonia Osorio. She's the president of the National Organization for Women in New York City and leading member of the New York State Anti-Trafficking Coalition. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning. Sonia, let's start with you. What's human trafficking by definition? It is when somebody, and it's generally uh, can be one person, it can be a network of people who make a business out of other people. And they do that often through, as you mentioned, sex or through labor. And they do it um, by means of trickery, luring somebody into this country, often setting up false pretenses, and sometimes by force, having them do either work for no, no pay or very low pay, um, which is often referred to as indentured servitude. So it's these people who actually create the business of finding the vulnerable people and finding the opportunities for them to work and taking full advantage of them in doing so. Monica, you work with victims of human trafficking? Yes, I do. And actually, I want to add uh, a comment that, you know, we see the traffic part uh, not just coming through the United States, but state to state. So we can see women who are going from one state within the U.S. through another state. They're traffic from one state to another. So human trafficking is not just international. Exactly. It's happening within our borders. Exactly. That yeah, one something. of the interesting things about the federal trafficking law that was passed for the first time in 2001 and has been revised a couple of times is that it defines a trafficked victim as a person who not only is trafficked from abroad but also anyone under the age of 18 who is involved in a commercial sex act is defined as a victim of human trafficking which when you think about it and read it and reread it as we did when that was passed it means that any kid under 18 who's involved in the sex business in in the United States is called a trafficking victim they can be pimped and you know sold right on the street where they grew up but they are called a trafficked victim and are entitled to protection instead of prosecution as a prostitute which of course and is how our system has treated them go ahead sonia and that is happening every day right here in the New York City streets. It is one of the fastest growing areas of the commercial sex trade, and that is underage girls, and it's American girls. And the first case that was um, charged under the uh, new human trafficking law here in New York is the story of a guy named Woodley Gaston who picked some, a girl up as she was walking home from school. This was a situation of force. And he took her to the nail salon. He took her to out to dinner. He wined and dined her, then lured her to his apartment, where he kept her there locked up for two full weeks and pimped her on Craigslist. That's how he got his customers. And uh, she was forced to have sex with over 200 men until she escaped two weeks later. 
and that is one of the horror stories that one of the examples of what's happening here in New York City and for many other young women it is the same situation of where they're coming from neglected homes or they don't feel a lot of love in their life they have somebody who gives them that uh, attention and they lure them into prostitution and you know our courts are filled with it and we don't have enough capacity to help these young girls. This is a hidden industry, though, now in New York, unlike the time when prostitution was rampant on the streets of New York City. Mm-hmm. Well, you see all the ads at the back of the Village Voice, of course, but also um, Craigslist is, of course, filled with sale of people, sale of women and girls and boys and men for, you know, for sex. I guess not for labor through that means, but... Why aren't police following these leads? If it's on Craigslist, why aren't they answering these ads and bringing people to justice? Such a good question, um, because it's such a low priority for law law enforcement. You know, as you saw when um, our esteemed governor was accused of patronizing a prostitute, so much of the press around that depicted the problem as a victimless crime. She liked it. She knew what she was doing. She wanted it. You know, he liked it. He knew what he was doing it. And yes, technically it was a crime. Those of us who work in this field don't see that at all. Those of us who work in this field see this as abuse and exploitation of the most vulnerable people. So, But law enforcement often doesn't see it that way. Um, community members often don't see it that way. It's just not seen that way. When someone way. hears of someone living a life of prostitution, they blame that person, that yeah. they're willing participants Even in this practice. Even if they're as young as 12 years old. Yep. Monica, you see that? Yes. And and I think what is really hard is that prostitution is seen as a crime. So people are really, um, you know, in the community. They don't want to talk about that. So that's why it's really hard to reach to victims. And, and they are afraid. I mean, I have um, a lot of clients who are afraid to even talk to the police because they're afraid of the immigration status or because they know that they, you know, they're involved in a crime. So that is making this work really difficult. They don't come to us. And when they come, it's a high level of mistrust. So when they start talking with us, they just share, you know, few things. But then, like with time, they are able to talk more and more about what had happened to them. I think that's a key thing that Monica said, that it is a crime. And I think even for law enforcement, it's, uh, you know, often a lot of the anti-trafficking work is, done. It's housed in the vice squad units, you know, rather than maybe special victims units. And so there needs to be um, an entire kind of education that has to be done so that law enforcement can better understand the situation that it's one of, of exploitation and abuse rather than these are criminals. Well, do we know now, Sonia, how the NYPD is trained on this issue? There's still a lot of work to be done. That's what we do know. The New York State law passed in uh, 2007, and there is a trafficking task force that is in the vice unit. And it's small, and it's very specific in the work that they've done. What they've started to do is work on getting these very young girls off the street. One, of course, asks, you ask yourself, this was an obvious thing to do before. (laughs) Um, When you saw young girls on the track in the Bronx and uh, at, uh, you know, the on Conduit Avenue um, by JFK Airport. So we have a campaign at Now NYC called Ask a Cop where we're asking people in the community and we have a core of volunteers are going out and surveying the cops that they see on the street in the subway. And it's absolutely fascinating when you ask them a, a 
simple questions like, hey, I, today I was reading a story about a new law in New York about human trafficking. Does that really happen here? And, you know, nine out of ten police officers have absolutely no idea that there's been a new law in the books. They can't describe trafficking, and they have ideas about it that are way far off than what it is. You know, one told me the other day, oh, yeah, that, that happens in New Jersey, but not New York. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and we're working with the, uh, the city of New York and, and the police department to try to, to get them to do more training. Carol, you're nodding your head in affirmation here. <laughs> yeah, it's true, although I also want I, – I do affirm what she said, but I did also want to point out that I was at a forum on Friday that was attended by a police officer, NYPD, from uh, the uh, Trafficking Task Force, and that cop and several of them are well-trained or kind of specialists. Of course, it needs to be much more widespread. I mean, when we had a trafficking project in New York City, we were thrilled when we were able to train 200 cops. But, of course, there's, what, 35,000 cops in New York City, and uh, so there's still a long way to go. Um, there are some knowledgeable people here and there, but, um, yeah, we have a long way to go. And then, of course, you have your bad apples. There have been cases in the media where crooked cops have taken bribes to look the other way. They take sexual favors or they're taking free drinks at a strip club, right? I think if you look in the archives of the New York Times, you know, throughout the uh, you know 19th century, you would find these stories continually popping up. I think the most recent was... Um, were these two police officers in Flushing, Queens, who would get sex and drinks at the bar at uh, this brothel that, you know, as it turned out, had Korean women. They spoke no English. They were trafficked here. In the vault, they found uh, ecstasy and their passports and a lot of cash. And what those cops were doing is where they were busting other brothels that would not pay them off. And they were making bribes of, you know, 6000 11000 when you looked at the indictment. Really big money on a weekly basis. There was a, a story in the news last spring that came and went fairly quickly of an NYPD detective who was arrested for pimping a 15-year-old girl. He held her for two weeks and was selling her at various parties where men would come and pay to have sex with her. And um, it's, you know, those chilling stories that are, for those of us who do this work, it's almost unbelievable. But they're, you know, they're out there all the time. Carol, you mentioned the ads that you'll find in the back of some community newspapers and other publications. Now, these ads to me are clear indications that there is something awry. They advertise exotic women. That to me says trafficking. You know, there is an ad that say vacation for adults. Actually, I have it, you know, here. And, and that is what they advertise. And, and it is clear that, is, that they want then young women to work in the trafficking part. You can see, I mean, I can show you. You can go into Internet and you can see a lot of ads with this kind of information. So are these publications then knowingly promoting human trafficking or are they unaware of what's behind these ads. They're aware. And, mm -hmm. of course, they're going to tell you that they're not aware. And we had a campaign um, called Trafficking Free NYC that went after publications to ask them to make a pledge not to run these ads anymore and that if they were going to be in the adult entertainment business, that they needed to do some due diligence. They needed to do the most basic work to make sure that they weren't fronts for prostitution. 
Um, and the truth is they know what they're doing. Let's take, for example, the Yellow Pages. You know, it's in everybody's home. It arrives at every business, at every home. It's part of our life. And yet one of the biggest categories in it is for escorts and for massage parlors. And if you were to open your Yellow Pages tonight, you're going to be shocked to find faces of girls that are literally 8 and 10 years old. They actually have images of young girls in there. And if you know the cost, the cost is $50,000 for a full-page ad. Nobody spends $50,000 on ads without talking to that sales rep and trying to understand how that money is going to really translate into increased sales. They know what they're doing. So you have to get people to voluntarily agree not to post these ads because there's nothing illegal about posting the ads. It is illegal if you uh, are going to advertise massage. You have to have a license from the state to perform massage, and you have to have a license if you're going to advertise massage services. So that's one of the things that we ask if, uh, if you know, because so many of the ads come under the massage heading, is, um, you know, it's the simplest thing that they can start is you have a, a form and you ask them for their New York State license. And obviously, though, these are things that are not hard to get. So if you have bad things in mind, you can get these two things quite easily, though. But not a lot of them do. And in terms of, you know, for a publication that doesn't want to be a marketing arm for this industry, that's, that's certainly one of the basic things that they can do. I think, Sonia, you were successful in getting some of the magazines to take those ads out. It's really kind of a, the community policing itself, you would think, because it's such a vast industry. It really gets to the demand side of the problem, which we should probably talk about. But, uh, Sonia, maybe you could just mention which uh, magazines did respond. We had a, a number of them. We had um, New York Press. We had New York Magazine, which had... Um, I know Monica was mentioning the one for the vacations. Mm-hmm. They actually, they literally ran an ad that said, have your own harem. It can't even be any clearer than that. And this place was a click away. If you went to their website, they aver- the difference between a standard room and a deluxe room at their resort in the Dominican Republic was whether you had access to one woman or two. And I would like to add that uh, they may advertise it as women, as women, one woman or two women, that it may very well be girls that they yeah. are actually selling um, because there's really no dividing line in the sex industry between girls under 18 and women over 18, that as long as she's, you know, basically developed, as long as she's, you know, physically developed, um, she may very well be involved in the adult commercial sex market, if you could put it that way. So my organization specializes in working to protect children, but it really overlaps very much with the adult sex market because there's no there's no gap between the two. Men just are seeking to buy sex from somebody they consider attractive and healthy looking and, you know, meeting what they see as what they want to buy. And they don't care whether she's 13 or, you know, 25 as long as she meets what he wants to see. There's a relatively new law on the books, though, in New York State that aims to crack down on so-called Johns, buyers of these people, correct? Well, the um, anti-trafficking law that was passed in 2007 does provide for increasing the penalties for patronizing prostitution. It increases it from a Class B to a Class A misdemeanor. You know, the reality of that is neither one of these are serious crimes. I mean, it's, you know, basically, you're, you're not going to go to jail. It's, it's like spitting gum or something. And I think, I think sidewalk spitting gum is, is, at the, is at the same level. 
So more than anything, it's a symbolic change. It would seem to me, Sonia, that's where there needs to be more teeth in the law then, because as Carol alluded to before, you have to deal with the demand issue. So if you reduce the demand by prosecuting the folks who are out there looking for illegal sex, then the folks aren't going to have the need to have all these people working for them. It's a simple formula, I know. It's a very simple <laughs> economic formula right, there. Exactly. You know, law enforcement, it's, it's still, for them, you know, they, it, it's this old kind of standard. It's very, very interesting. You know, women are arrested here in New York City, two to one, to John's, and that is really, really good compared to other cities. I mean, nationwide, the picture is much worse. You've got, I think, Sacramento has um, arrests of 20 to one, and San Francisco as well. And here in New York City, 50% of the women who are are arrested for prostitution are convicted. I was going to jump in and talk about that um, children are also arrested for prostitution in New York, Uh, although I thought the law that you're actually going to refer to was the Safe Harbor Act, which was recently signed by the governor, which for the first time provides for protection for kids who are involved in in prostitution. They will no longer go straight to jail. Right, rather than them being or rather than them being allowed to be prosecuted, they must now be offered services. Uh, these are kids who have had been neglected, abused, very frequently phys- uh, sexually abused at home. And as one of the pimps in one of our reports was quoted as saying, these kids have been raped so many times, it's my job to teach them they might as well get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And when a kid reaches adolescence and they're looking for somebody who loves them and want, and, you know, a life, a pimp comes along to groom them, she's his. It's so easy to see how she falls into his arms because he says, I love you, baby, you're the greatest. And it doesn't take very long before he's able to groom her to go and enter the life, you know, to work for him. And, you know, working for him involves both words of love and beatings and being turned out onto the street. Monica? Yes, I think that something that that you mentioned is, you know, trafficking overlaps with domestic violence. I mean, we can see here the power and control wheel in domestic violence, and we at the agency developed the power and control wheel in trafficking, and it overlaps. I mean, these women are afraid that these guys will hurt them or will hurt the family in their own countries. Um, I had a client who actually, this guy say, if you say something, I'm going to go to your house in this, in your country. And he described her house and he never went to this country. So these women are really, really afraid of the consequences. Are there telltale signs that human trafficking is taking place in your neighborhood? Are there things that people could look out for? Everybody wants to know what should I look for because of everybody wants to help. It's not necessarily so easy to tell. Um, although there have been the Good Samaritan cases who came forward. Maybe Monica could talk about some, but I know some cases of kids who were trafficked for domestic servitude to the United States were identified because, for example, the neighbor saw there was a kid in that house who they saw take out the garbage, but they never saw them again, and they didn't seem to go to school, and it just looked funny, and so they called authorities. You know, So there are Good Samaritan cases of people who... Mm-hmm. It's just something strange going on. And it's very important for Americans to know that human trafficking takes place because you can't believe it 
that it's here in my suburban community or here on my block until somebody says, yeah, trafficking takes place everywhere in the United States. You might want to just keep an, an, a lookout for it. Yes, and I think it's so hard because I had, for example, another client who was, you know, who was forced to prostitution. And when she was taken to this house, they never allow her to go outside. They never allow her to see out of the window. So there was no way for people outside to even realize that that is what was going on in the in the neighbor's house. So it is really hard to to look for those kind of signs. But I mean, like you said, you know, it depends of uh, if somebody is aware of the, the case. It'd be really important for everybody who does any kind of um, social service work on, or hospital staff or anybody who does any kind of outreach to know that human trafficking takes place, to um, know something about the law and to know what to do when you suspect it, which is to call the human trafficking hotline or, a, you know, a, a trusted either law enforcement agent who you know knows about it or, for example, in New York City Sanctuary for Families, which provides um, services. And I think, you know, service providers, I think that is what we need to do, ask more questions because we don't ask and we need to be direct and we need to start asking, you know, the, the good questions and we need to try to understand what is going on and why. I had, just talking about more cases, but I had another client who actually was with us as a domestic violence survivor, and she was with us for almost four years, and she never disclosed this information until something happened with her case that she was, you know, she she, um, knew at the time that it was good that she told um, her whole story. So just, you know, after four years, and she has been working with us. So that is just an example of, you know, the mistrust that these women had. It's somebody's father, it's somebody's uncle, somebody's brother-in-law who's out there creating this market that in turn creates a demand, one that's so widespread, there aren't even enough American women who want to do it. We have to import women from other countries to do it. One of the things that we can do is we can be frank with the men in our lives that this is not a lifestyle that benefits anybody. It hurts everybody. And not to turn a blind eye to it and to stand up to it. And as far as the victims coming from other countries, are there primary countries where these victims are coming from? Yes, we have three big areas. One, Southeast Asia, that is China, Thailand, Vietnam. The second largest number is Latin America, Mexico, Brazil, Dominican Republic, and Honduras. And the rest come from East Europe, Russia, Ukraine, and Czech Republic. Now, are these countries just doing too little to prevent this from happening, from these victims from even being transported to other places? Well, I think you have to understand the pressure that families uh, feel in those countries to get to a locale where they can get a job, where they can work. Really, what trafficking victims want to do is work. That's all they want to do, which I think stands in the way sometimes of them asking for help and being rescued because they want to support their families, they want to work. Um, I have a colleague, my organization is international, we're in 75 countries. I have a colleague uh, from a country in Africa who said, there's also trafficking victims from Africa, sure. by the way. I know, yeah, I, <laughs> I know. know. I know you said the three largest regions, <laughs> but frankly, they're from everywhere. Yes, exactly. Um, and he said that if somebody went to a family in his small community in Malawi and said, I have a great job for your daughter in London or New York, he said, of course they would let her go. It's their one and probably only opportunity to get a first rung on the economic ladder because there's no jobs, there's no economic opportunity, they're very, very poor, 
And this seems like, you know, a dream come true. So, of course, if she goes, then her passport is taken away. She's held against her will, and they threaten that they will kill her family. And to the extent that trafficking victims are poor and powerless people from the same community where the trafficker is rich and powerful, she knows that he knows where her family is and that the family is at risk. So it's easy to say, oh, they should just not go. But... um, We've also looked at, when I've done some of these talks, I looked at the poverty rates for um, people in many of the countries from which trafficking victims come, and they're astonishingly high. You know, there are many millions and millions of people who live on a dollar a day. There is an immense, for example, stunting of growth of children due to malnutrition and poverty in many countries. So it's easy for us to say, well, just don't go. It's too dangerous. But when you're under that kind of pressure, economic pressure, you know, close to starvation, it's much easier to understand why people actually leave their home and are trying to go somewhere to get a job, make some money, send some money home, you know, do anything. So I point to it's not just on the receiving end that prevention has to do with regularizing our migration system around the world so that people don't accept the offer, oh, yeah, I'll take your daughter to, you know, New York, just leave her with me, Um, but that it's more regularized and, of course, poverty reduction, you know, big, big, big global issue um, would, you know, fight trafficking. And I think the other point is, you know, when when they come here, they are offered actually, you know, two jobs or you want to go to the parlor to do a massage or you go into prostitution. So they don't have any other option and more when they don't have their passport with them. So they are forced to do that. Who are the traffickers? Does any one group dominate this industry? I think research shows that it's really, it runs the gamut from the big international organized crime networks, you know, in Eastern Europe, former, you know, Soviet countries to them, you know, the one guy who marries a girl and brings her to the United States and now tells her she's going to be a prostitute. Um, you know, both cases exist. I, I'm not sure that there are statistics that show what most people are involved in. But, you know, and then everything in between that was small networks and, you know, regional networks. And so it's, you know, there's no one picture. Mail order bride companies part mm-hmm. of the problem as well, huh? Big problem. Yeah, I know that Sanctuary has some of the women who've come over as as. Right, haven't mm-hmm. they, Monica? Yes, and it was the same case that, uh, you know, when they were here, their passport were taken away from them, and they offered, you know, you have two options, this one or that one, and, and they were forced into uh, prostitution. Why is New York City such a hotbed for this industry? You know, it's a big, vigorous, dynamic, diverse city where lots of things happen, it turns out, um, that are below the radar. Um, And also, I think it's, you know, certainly the international trafficking situation can happen because there's so many migrant communities here, immigrant communities, speaking so many languages and, you know, and so diverse that it's easy for it to hide, I would think, in uh, immigrant communities. But also, you know, I really do think that the regularization of the uh, sex industry, you know, it's sort of accepted. You know, it's that's New York City, you know, in some ways is proud of itself for being so open in that way. But, of course, it hides so much exploitation and so much abuse that we're trying to pull out of the shadows and, you know, and put forth and say, but wait a second, this is really bad, (laughs) this part of what we do. It's sort of mind-boggling to think that a lot of these people come right through JFK Airport. Yeah. Right through the airport. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they do. I saw a... um, 
a sign that um, ICE or Homeland Security had put up in uh, JFK in the immigration area uh, once when I was coming through, and it uh, apparently was an anti-human trafficking message, but it was so long and convoluted that if a trafficking, if this was to try to help a trafficking victim get help once she got here, it was not doing the job. And there should be messages in the airports, um, and there should be information handed out when people are emigrating about what to do when you need, if you need help in our country. The same that you know we're doing with domestic violence. I, I agree. I think that we need to do with trafficking victims as well. You know, and and have clear these are your rights if you're here, and go to the communities, to the immigrant communities, and start talking about this. I think that is another thing that we need to do. These are clearly difficult economic times, and there's not a lot of money to go around these days. A lot of items are getting cut from budgets. Do you have enough resources to do what you do? Is there enough money for services to help victims of human trafficking in New York? I think that we still need the money, and the cuts are affecting us, you know, because it means that we, you know, we have maybe layoff, and that means that we don't have another counselor to help doing this work. So, yes, it is, it is affecting us. So many issues here for us to talk about. I'm sure we can go on for another hour or so, but we'll have to cut it here. Carol Smolensky, the Executive Director of End Child Prostitution, Child Pornography and Trafficking USA. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. I want to thank Monica Roldan. She's the Manager of Community Outreach and a social worker for Sanctuary for Families New York. Monica, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And I want to say thanks to Sonia Osorio, President of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and leading member of the New York State Anti-Trafficking Coalition. Sonia, thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers McCall Neria and Andrew Hirschman. Have a great weekend. 